0: Hi, I'm Matt. I'm Annie A.K. Okay?
1: And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men trying to answer the question, is it Still Great Bob? This week we are discussing Season 2, Episode 7, The Gold Violin," written by Jane Anderson and Andre Jack Metten and Maria Jack Metten and Matthew Weiner and directed by Andrew Bernstein. <laughs> this episode originally aired on September 7th, 2008.
0: Opening at number one in the box office that weekend was Bangkok Dangerous, a Nicolas Cage joint I have definitely blocked from memory and which has an impressive Rotten Tomatoes score of 8% still. Uh, And coming in second is Tropic Thunder, which I think is still probably a very entertaining film and The Dark Knight at number three. At the top of the the music charts, uh, T.I.'s, whatever you like, is still holding strong at the number one spot.
2: You know what Tropic Thunder doesn't have going for it, though? Michael Kane Michael Kane. <laughs> Some men just will watch the world burn. This week on Mad Men, Don learns about the importance of conspicuous consumption. Jimmy Barrett lets Betty in on a not-so-subtle secret. Jane and the boys discuss modern art without consequences and sal and kitty romano host a sunday dinner
0: it did seem like a fairly packed episode so i guess all these writers make sense it's a lot yeah
1: i don't know why i decided not to read my whole line before we started the podcast but I, when I first opened the show notes, I was like, oh, written by Jane Anderson. No wonder it's coherent. And then it's 102 yeah. writers. So I guess, thankfully, it's coherent. That's actually
2: pretty <laughs> impressive. Well, and I guess, I, like, so my assumption is that each of the ra- credited writers were probably assigned a certain section or, or storyline to write on, which sounds like something you should have researched before you recorded that. But anyways, let's go with it. So I guess then if we're using that working assumption, did we feel like the episode worked together as a cohesive piece or were there certain aspects within it and the different storylines that worked better for us in isolation? Or did we feel it it worked well as a kind of cohesive unit?
0: Hmm. I, I don't know that necessarily everything gelled together i do think of it more as it's it's the sum you know the the actual separate components right it's hard for me to like think there was all like one thematic through way through all of them
1: if i have to force one onto it um not all of them are not all of the storylines are fully realized in this way but i'm thinking about um the idea of like Having arrived, as we'll talk mostly about with like Dawn, but I think a lot of the arcs or the just the storylines in this episode, uh, could be boiled down to like trying to arrive or trying to become fully, fully realized, even though I think Dawn, um, in some aspects, like makes it there in this episode, but also like jimmy barrett i feel like he feels pretty fully realized in this episode um right. and then we see like sal and jane uh you know trying to get to that place where they feel like they have arrived
0: mm-hmm. trying to be who they think they ought to be maybe and who they mm-hmm. really are is kind of still revealing itself i mean yeah but i guess that does apply to don then because he definitely wants to think of himself as that guy who's arrived, who's got this place of power, the one who's so pleased with him himself and smiling when Bert is trying to tell him like, no, you're, you're going to be this guy for us. You're going to be the guy on the phil- philanthropy board making moves. Uh, but, you know, Jimmy's still totally going to call him out and tell him who he is.
1: Oh, my God. It's amazing. Ugh. But I guess that's like the last on thing. So we should start with the car.
2: Cadillac. I
1: laughed about, yeah, and I laughed about the car salesman originally being like, oh, are you afraid you'll fall in love? And I literally was like, Don Draper would never. <laughs> <love him forever." laughs> hey, worried about that. Well, I was going to say, I think
0: Don does in his head kind of thinks that he's falling in love every single time. He goes off with someone and he thinks, this is the person who's going to solve all my problems. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, go back to the sales salesman, who is definitely one of those, like, capital letter, capital C, capital G, that guy.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, because he goes on, oh, blah, blah, blah. You don't even need a Cadillac because, like, your skin is bougie. I don't even know what you said. <laughs> but uh, he said... I bet you'd be as comfortable in one of those as you would in your own skin. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, so you mean, like, completely (laughs) miserable? And he's going to hate this card deeply. (laughs) But that just goes to show you, like, Don Draper is, like, fully presenting and giving off this, like, I have all my shit together. I'm exactly who I'm supposed to be. This, like, big executive making moves in my career when really he's, like, uh, the king of self-hatred and is miserable in his own skin, and probably, and, like, when he says, like, the Cadillac says, you have arrived, the fact that, like, he, that's what flips us back into this flashback, I'm like, yeah, Don hasn't arrived anywhere.
0: No, not at all.
1: I mean, personally, career-wise, yeah, he made some cool moves today, but, you know.
0: Yeah, like, the Cadillac is kind of, like, an outward, another, like, part of the the costume, if anything else.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I did like the look on his face, though, when he could you could tell he kind of do he like he can tell when he's getting the upsell, considering he's done it so many times. And just mm-hmm. as I was thinking that they cut to him as a car, car salesman once upon a time.
1: I laughed at that, too. Like Don Draper would have been a used car salesman. At one, point. I don't know that he was that. Or
0: not Don Draper. Not Don Draper. I don't know how how good of a cars used car salesman do you think he was, though? Because I didn't feel the vibe that he had quite found the magic just yet
1: right
2: what did you think of that flashback scene melissa
1: um i mean i thought it was interesting i'm like frustrated that we're never gonna know who that lady was probably i mean maybe we will in the next episode then you guys can all laugh at me (laughs) but (laughs) you guys aren't saying anything fuck okay anyway um like if you had to guess who would you think don draper's i don't know like what is what are the appropriate ages? Like is she his like long lost child or like his long lost like lover that he left to go into the war? One of those two.
2: So let me I guess let me try and come at it come <laughs> at it from this direction. Um, to just totally put you on the spot. So one of the things that I enjoyed about the the one scene of a flashback in John Hamm's performance is it wasn't very Don Draper. It read to me as very like Dick Whitman. Obviously it's after the war. oh yeah Obviously he's so, okay you know, going by the, the pseudonym. Go ahead.
1: You got me back on track. What I really thought about um when I when we're not podcasting and I'm not thinking about like how all these things like fit together and what things you guys can laugh at me later about. Um <laughs> is that like while I'm watching the episode, I was thinking about the flashback as being like some When someone confronts him and says, like, oh, you're not Draper, I'm. you're not Don Draper, I'm like, yeah, he's not Don John Draper yet because he hasn't, like, fully molded into that persona that we know him yet. So, like, that's why he was thinking about, because I'm taking it as, like, he was thinking about that flashback in that moment. Yeah. So, when someone says to him, like, oh, you're comfortable in your skin, you're successful, you have arrived, he's thinking, like, no, I haven't remember when i wasn't even don draper Mm -hmm. yeah and like maybe i'm still not
0: he's definitely come a long way since those uh car car salesman days
2: kind of made me wonder how like someone and i I mean maybe it's something we'll we'll see coming up and over the the seven seasons but how does that guy to use car lot become a power executive creative at sterling cooper like it's an interesting kind of career arc because we don't know what those blanks are yet, but, uh,
1: yeah. Did he like sell a car to like Roger Sterling's dad? And the dad was like, I see something in you kid. Come work at my advertising Mm. agency. (laughs) It is
0: almost more stark to see, um, the person that he was just before he became a Don Draper that we know, uh, and who he becomes yeah. versus, you know, seeing the kid that he was and the home that he came from back when he was still just Dick Whitman. Because we're just like looking just a couple steps before and then you've got this wrench thrown in here with this woman telling him going, uh-uh, no, I know I know something that other people here don't. And he just gives her that look that I think, I feel like we've seen a couple times from Don where he's like, what the fuck do you mean you, I'm not Don Draper.
2: <laughs> How did you t- have t- I been caught? So I, I think the point that we're kinda of talking with the Cadillac and you know the conspicuous consumption and everything else, that idea that like Don has arrived and now because he's a partner in the firm, because he is one of the senior executives, there's all these different expectations put upon him right and i think it's interesting the way that this episode discussed with don specifically kind of the intersections between business and we talked about philanthropy a little bit and then ultimately in bert's speech and we know (laughs) bert bert loves Ayn rand um the intersection of then that that ruling class that kind of political power and, and the intersection of that and the appearance of that as well to maintain it like it's not good enough for the ruling class to you know have have and hoard all the wealth away from you know the proletariat it it's more like these are all the things that then we expect of you to appear to maintain it's it's having the car it is the philanthropy these are the things you're supposed to do to kind of exert your dominance on everyone else which i thought was i don't know if the show's necessarily like critiquing it as much as it's saying hey this is a thing that happens but uh it's definitely interesting, especially like Bert's role at the firm as kind of the elder statesman, and then teaching Don that that lesson. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 worth highlighting, I think.
1: Philanthropy is the gateway to power, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: except for like. Not real philanthropy where you actually help people, just the kind where you drive your fancy car places (laughs) and like look pretty. All
0: just status. (laughs) Oh, if you're the kind of person on the board, you're obviously the kind of person who matters for everything else.
1: Plus, like, okay, do we trust Don with philanthropy? Homeboy can't even find a garbage can for him.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God.
1: They all look so picture perfect, too.
2: Well, and it's it's interesting that you mentioned, like, picture perfect, because, like, the picnic really reminded me of the, the Coca-Cola modeling shoot that Betty mm-hmm. did last season, where it's, like, definitely felt like a callback to that, and it is this kind of, like, idealized picnic, this kind of, like, beautiful kind of, you know gorgeous suburban like american successful like talking about conspicuous consumption this kind of like american ideal and then they're like they're great betty's like oh this is so nice we should do this more often and then they pack up to leave and don throws the beer can betty like does the table trick with the like picnic blanket and just leaves all the trash there mm-hmm. and watching that like there's a lot of like more cringeworthy stuff we see on Madden, but like this just really stood out to me because it's like if you saw someone doing that at a park now it'd be like what the like like it just was just really it's not not something i'm used to seeing which i'm sure happened all the time before like recycling became more popular and and everything else right and more of like a ecological consciousness but yeah it was really like a moment from another time
0: it's so interesting that you mentioned that just the image that they created because at some point when bobby has to pee and don's like oh go behind a tree he says nobody's watching it's like yeah so what? this is all just a performance for themselves basically
1: <laughs> yeah then why are you all laid out i was really sad because betty said or no not beggy that's funny though um Sally said that she wanted to tinkle outside, but she's not allowed to because she's a girl. But nobody's even boy. watching. Nobody's even watching, though. You just yeah. said,
2: mm-hmm. "Yep, yep."
1: Let her tinkle outside, and then they already talked her out of it because when they were like, "Do you have to go?" she was like, "No," but it's like I know you do, and I know you still want to, <laughs> but you said you—they already said that you weren't allowed to—and now you feel sad and embarrassed, and I'm just. Yep. Mad.
0: <laughs> I mean, as a girl, you always have to have your guard up. All always.
1: girls should tinkle outside. Uh,
0: unless you have bad aim and you have to get into a car with other people. <laughs> in which case, maybe try to hold it in for a little bit longer. It wasn't even the first time uh, that we heard Betty make a comment to Sally about something. About basically just keep it uncomfortable for the sake of of appearances and looks and being a girl. Because uh, what when she was going through Sally's hair after going swimming she was telling her that her hair was turning green and that she needed to wear the cap even though Sally says it made her head it squeezed her head too much it's like okay cool let's just establish this early on now that be uncomfortable you're a girl this is your existence beauty is
1: pain
2: so, I want to like the, so I'm just thinking about the title now and the idea and like trying to like what we were talking about before and like looping things together in the episode thematically and Ken, and we'll talk about it more probably when we get to like Ken and Sal later, but talks about seeing a gold violin and how it's perfect in every way except that it can't play music. So do we think these ways that we're kind of put upon, and again, like Sally asked with the swim cap or she can't pee outside, and, you know, it's all about kind of, like, appearances even when no one's watching. Like, is is that a through line for the episode, do we think, or no?
1: I mean, I kind of do. The idea that something, like, looks so perfect, but it actually doesn't function um like the the draper family looks perfect all laid out but they're not letting sally tinkle outside and they're leaving like a whole like raccoons habitat worth of litter on the ground Mm
0: -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. and like they're just not not and then like even more so when we get to oh betty and don And the Barretts, and we can just see even further how much they're just not functioning, even though they look perfect. Mm -hmm. Speaking of perfect, Betty, at this event, in her blue dress. Looking great. Like, it's so good. The waist on that dress, it's just
2: gorgeous.
0: And Don certainly says the right thing, because when she comes in, she says, you know, like, oh, everyone here looks so glamorous. And he's like, oh, everyone's thinking the same about you. And (laughs) in that moment, in all that that success, and even just like when he brings the Cadillac home and everything looks amazing. Also, the Cadillac is also blue, a beautiful blue. And
1: the Cadillac also had to get purchased because he 100% wrecked his car with his mistress. Yes, also that. (laughs)
0: But it's all like playing into the idea of what they're supposed to be and what Don supposedly has been working for all this time. And you can see how happy Mm -hmm. he is that Betty is happy about it. Not necessarily because he wants his wife to be happy, but because like, oh, I have created this life. I've done everything I'm supposed to do as a husband. Maybe I'm projecting, but like it's not because it's what he wants or because it's his passion or because it's what makes him happy. He's just fulfilling his role that he has set for himself. But uh, Jimmy certainly doesn't want to just let him relax into this idea that everything is wonderful and fine and dandy. He does kind of just sow this discord in all of it, doesn't he?
1: Oh, my God. I mean, he's so good at this, too. Because he's kind of playing
0: along, but also he's just like, we may as well just call it out for what it is, right?
1: Well, yeah, and it's, like, he went with this long enough to, like he said, get everything he Mm -hmm. wanted. And, like, now that that's all set in stone, like, this shit doesn't matter anymore. You guys don't get to uh, live in this fantasy world in which you've pulled this over on me. Like, no, no, no. I just wanted my show, and I wanted my uts. Mm -hmm. And now that I have those, I'm going to tell you that you are garbage
0: <laughs> well i mean we've seen we've seen him before he he plays the game for his own sake he's happy to you know be himself but then he can also be that person who falls in line because we saw him you know with the Uts people when as soon as he like got the signal mm-hmm. from bobby he's just like he makes that actually like very decent apology and uh, what's his? He says to Don, "Thanks to you, I got everything I wanted." Later on, he says, "You know what I like about you? Nothing. But it's okay. You got everything, Ugh. or you got me everything. Sick burn. What did you get, Bobby? Lots of people got that. I'm laughing at you. It's like, oh,
1: like what a bummer to find out that like Bobby, for one, is not as slick as she thinks she is. But also, um, I'm glad you mentioned that dinner with the Uts people because when when we first talked about that episode I guess I hope I'm not contradicting myself but the way I'm thinking about it now is like I think I interpreted that apology as being like Jimmy knows when Bobby means business and she had decided that we're doing this like I think that I had read that as like part of like her control in this relationship and now it's like no he's just smart about this stuff and he knows when not to take it too far in order to get what he wants and if keeping Bobby um, believing that she does hold this power like helps him to that end, then there you go. It's
0: easy to see him as this like wild cannon kind of character who just does, who just is f- happy to wreck everything. Uh, and Bobby's the one who keeps him in line. It's Like no, he's he's got more going on than you think you know he the way he calls Mm -hmm. betty instead of the secretary instead of calling jane first about the party he's doing that on purpose he's setting the groundwork Mm -hmm. to leaving everything shaken and unsteady and even then at the party he's just not not like laying it out like oh you know I don't know if you know, but this is what's been going on. He's just like, oh, look at them. Of course, you know what's going on. You're not an idiot, Betty. I know what's going on. We can we have eyes. We're looking at them right there. But, you know, like, whatever. That's kind of uh, it's kind of setting, but whatever. And it's like he knows that that's going to be more effective to causing problems for Don than if he just said, you know, just started lashing out and accusing and, you know, causing a scene.
1: And Well, yeah, because he does it in this way where like, oh, sorry, Matt, go ahead.
2: No, sorry. I was just going to like say and then what does that say about Jimmy's view of like Don? And I know he he lays it out earlier, but like the best way he feels like he can like get back at Don is by like informing and empowering Betty. Mm-hmm. Right? Which I think is is interesting.
1: Well, yeah, he definitely had like a twofold plan, which was uh become friends with Betty, make her feel good about herself because she did she was like oh I just think that he like likes talking to me so like it's I don't want to say like He's he doesn't, like, think highly of Betty at all. I'm sure that he does, but, like, a lot of that, I think, was, like, an ins- or a means to an end in his little yeah. game here. But, like, yeah. so he, like, ingratiates himself to Betty to where she feels like they are, like, equals. They have, like, a little connection, like, a little inside thing. Like, not that it's, like, a problem, but just, like, they have this thing that's theirs. And then he, like, pulls the rug out from under her when it comes to Dawn. And so she's gonna be like off balance and then he goes and tells you know tells Don like everything that he said ending with your garbage and you know it so now he's off kilter and so now this relationship is fucked up and neither of them know that the other one knows and it's great (laughs) and then Betty throws up in the Cadillac whoops oops
0: I mean that the fun combination of too much (laughs) to drink and all that all that tea (laughs) but uh I thought the comparison between Jimmy and Betty were also really interesting, too, because they have that connection where you think they're the ones being played and you kind of feel bad for them, but maybe not so much for Jimmy because he's also kind of an asshole and Betty's like the sweet one who can be a really mean mom sometimes. But it was, I kind of liked his way of approaching her almost as like an equal and an empowering her because... Mm-hmm. You can see him as the dope who's the, or the sucker who's just getting what he wants and who isn't thinking and just wants to be, you know, make money off his, his shtick of being an asshole. But he, in his own way, has his own power in the relationship because he's aware of what's going on and he, it's like he chooses to let it happen, even if they didn't necessarily mm-hmm. like come to an agreement that it was going to be an open relationship. Yeah. So now he's trying to bring that to Betty as well. But like,
2: is she going to be able to
0: handle it? What do you guys think?
2: Like? Jimmy's, Jimmy's total approach, I think, to that situation, kind of his relationship and his career, it definitely feels like now the name of the show that they're doing that ABC has picked up, the, the Grin and Barrett. It. Like, it's his pun. His last uh-huh. name is Jimmy Barrett. haha. But, like, that's so much his approach to all of this is to just grin and then Barrett and then get mm. his, like digs in where he's can to then you know make himself feel better tell don what he thinks of him to like arm betty with that with the truth basically and in that information but yeah he's just there gritting and bearing it until he's not so yeah
0: it's kind of mercenary but hey he he got what he wanted like he told don and now he can just uh you know leave a landmine for them to all like explode over what now that he's gone and safe
1: and i'm like kind of laughing because he said what did you get bobby lots of people have had that and like what did bobby get don lots of people have had that
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's like you guys aren't as clever or sly or you're just not as good as you think you are i Mm -hmm. see the lie we all see the lie yeah you can't lie to yourself not when jimmy's there
2: well and like betty's whole point about like you people, I can't, I should have written it down, I can't remember the exact quote, but she basically says to Barrett, like, you people are are, are cruel and and ugly, and ugly and ugly. There we go. And then Jimmy has, like, you better be talking about comedians, because, I mean, obviously he's a Jewish character. Um, or, so he's like, don't be anti-semitic about it, which I don't think she is. I think she's talking about that kind of, like, attitude again. But then that brings up again the whole idea of the gold violin and, and being being beautiful and being pretty and being something else that isn't necessarily functional or authentic right so again there's there's certain behaviors betty expects of herself and largely sally as as we've talked about and i'm curious to see with about half just a little under half the season left um what happens with betty does she does she keep that information to herself like she did about the uh the betrayals in season one, do we see a repeat of that pattern or does Betty pick kind of a, a new path forward now that, you know, after their renegotiation that obviously happened in 1961 off screen, um, she knows Don hasn't changed. So I'm curious about if anything changes with them.
0: Mm. Do you think that Betty is reaching a place where she could do something about it or like maybe she's more she's closer to that empowerment where she can actually you know take the upper hand that she has knowing the truth or is she even able to to process it is she going to do anything do you think
1: i kind of feel like don is going to just go so hateful that she's not going to have a chance to do anything cuz she's going to be like why are you like this i'm the one who should be mad
0: he is quite good at turning things around mm. and being the self-persecuted the the persecuted person isn't he
2: well, that's, yeah, that's definitely in his and a lot of other men's playbooks, right? Mm-hmm. Nice to
1: <laughs> Indeed.
0: Mm-hmm. And it sounded like he had been staying away from Bobby, too, all this time, but...
2: Well, he did leave her tied to the bed, so... True. When he found out that he was a commodity that people were talking about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're right. She... He was ignoring her phone calls early in the episode. She that was, was
0: and... Left her wanting more, even though he was
2: totally terrible about it.
0: Not that there was anyone who wasn't terrible in that
2: particular situation. Did we want to transition to Jane and Joan?
0: Sure. Okay, so I mean, kind of clear on who the not-so-great people were in that whole Don, Jimmy, Bobby, Betty thing. Joan and Jane, do we have... I have a hard time fully I'm, like sympathizing with either two women, but I'm also not blaming either of them for how they reacted. What about what did you guys think?
1: I super agree with that. Um actually, there's a the part where Jane is like, "What's wrong with you? Are you the only one allowed to have fun around here?" and I'm like confused about what she's even referencing cuz like Joan doesn't play at work. Mm-mm for for
0: all her shenanigans with, like, Roger, she keeps it profound. Yeah, but no...
1: Yeah. Nobody knows about that, and, like, yeah, she was being, like, she had slipped into her, like, you know, one of the office girls' persona, like, when she was showing off her ring and stuff, but the reason she was working on desk is because Jane wasn't here yet, so, like, she doesn't even know about those times. So I'm confused about what Jane's even referencing.
2: Isn't it, like, perceived, like, power? Right? And, like, the way Joan is, like, perceived in the office. Because, like, when I when I kind of... And, again, I'm coming at this from my very, like, you know, my own kind of perspective is, as limited as that, that may be, so I'm curious to hear both your thoughts on this. But, like, Jane and Joan feel like... Hmm, I don't want to say it's an ideological war, because that would be a misuse of the term... But it's kind of like when you see someone who you're similar enough to in some ways, but they come at, you know, their goals or their methods are like a little bit differently. And you feel that like, no, the way I do things is better. Or the way it kind of, you know, rubs you with where. What am I trying to say, Matt? What are you trying to say? I think when Jane says to Joan, what, are you the only one who's allowed to have fun here? It's about the control that Joan has of the office and how, and we've talked about this a bit before, how Joan uses what she can in terms of weaponizing her sexuality to make her position at Sterling Cooper as comfortable and to gain as much power and influence as is afforded to Joan under the patriarchal systems of that office so jane is about 10 years we know joan's like 30 so just jane says she's 20 jane is coming to that office she's 10 years younger i do think jane is actually really good at her job i mean we also saw her contrast to lois who's a sweetheart but again not the most um perceptive person who's ever worked don's desk in terms of how to manage people's expectations about don um and Jane's hungry, and she's ambitious. And I think she looks at Joan's position and like is kind of gunning at her heels a bit. And I think Joan looks at Jane, and thinking about what we talked about last episode with the uh, unbuttoned shirt down a couple, two different buttons or whatever, um, Jane's a lot more, or at least reads to me, as more overtly using her sexuality than Joan does. And Joan's a little bit older school, and I think wants her use of her sexuality to be a little bit more subtle where jane's just like hey here i am here i am i'm going to like you know be as bold and present as i can and i don't know if it's like a generational thing or not i don't know i should have noodled this a bit more to get it concise down i apologize but what do you all think of the word salad i just threw out there
0: no i totally get it because there's something and maybe this is just the older millennial in me but there's something about the way People talk about, like, millennials as if we're not, like, in our mid-30s now about the entitlement and success of, like, yes, you may have an education, you may be trained, you may have innate talent and in the ability to critical critically think, but all you guys just think that you deserve to be at the top of the ladder without, you know, putting, putting in the time or understanding, you know, where you should be coming from. You just want to be at the end with the participation prize. Like... I don't want to be an okay Boomer type person, but it does seem like she just sees the end point and sees what Joan is and sees that sure she has like skills and abilities and people rely on her, but she wants to skip all that stuff that Joan went through and completely takes for granted the fact that things were even less progressive when Joan was her age and just coming up. and having to deal with all the obstacles of being this incredibly beautiful, attractive woman in this very male-driven, patriarchal, awful, you know, office environment. And, like, you get the sense that Jane could actually be that person, and there is such a closeness between their names, even, on top of everything, and how, <laughs> you know, the, just physically, there's there's some mirroring there that you can see. But... It's so, I, I I get why Joan is so frustrated of like, you could be this person, you could pretend, but there's this arrogance and inability to see not so much the bigger picture, but like the steps to get to that end point.
1: Well, in terms of like the bigger picture, I was also thinking a little bit about like Jane uh, says like, oh, I don't need a mom. I'm 20, which in my mind, I'm like, oh, my God, you're 12. (laughs) Um, So I'm sure 20 was older than in this time. 20 was older than it is now. That's fine. Whatever. But I am thinking about the fact that like Jane is pretty new in this office and I'm going to assume that this is like her first office job. So she's like new to this environment. And for the most part, um, secretaries are kind of allowed to go wherever they want or need to go to like do whatever little silent things that they need to do so she probably has seen secretaries go in and out of these offices doing whatever with like no issues and it's probably not it doesn't feel like this like sacred place to her because uh cooper wouldn't treat it that way Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i'm sure that cooper's secretary goes in to uh refresh his ice and empty his garbage and like tidy up whatever and it's like the women are allowed in these spaces because they're not a threat Mm -hmm. in these spaces and it has you know it has nothing to do with them if that makes sense yeah they're like invisible
2: so then is the jones perceived then issue with Jane that ends up leading to her brief, very brief um, dismissal from the office. Is it the power and influence and how Jane influ- pu- exerts that power and influence over the junior executives that's ultimately the issue? Because like, to your point, Melissa, it's like secretaries have carte blanche to go where they need to do, qu- and you said, quietly mm-hmm. and alone to do their job. So is this right. is the issue <laughs> that like Jane was acting above her station or what what her perceived station is in the role because we've seen a lot this season of like now peggy is called miss olsen from the girls even though she used to be one of them and like you know they had to wait and and peggy got to eat first because she's part of creative so is joan worried that is is it is it who and how jane is using her her power how she's trying to exert her influence and who she's exerting it on
1: Yeah, and, like, maybe that she wasn't contrite when Joan came to ask her about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah.
1: Like, instead of being like, oh, man, I'm so sorry, I totally misread the situation, Mm -hmm. instead of saying that, she said, what is wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Joan said, not today. (laughs) And I... At the same
0: time, you know, it's it's kind of a battle of like, do you play against the traditional rules to get ahead or do you just completely break them and create your own rules? Because Joan has always given that impression. I think we've talked about it before. She's the person who rose up in the ranks and became like the queen bee by following the rules and being amazing at her job better than anyone could possibly even dream to be. And that's how she's gotten kind of her loftier position, you know, although basically like she's kind of, not to disparage the good work that secretaries do, but she is a bit the tallest munchkin in land here sometimes. And then you've got Jane coming in here going, you know, and admittedly just saying, hey, completely smart, critically thinking, simple solution to all this weird bullshit you guys are pulling with your speculation – literally no actual rules in place that says we can't go into the office and look at it right now Mm
1: -hmm. but
0: it's just like it's almost like she just her inherent cleverness and her ability is enough it's not like she's earned the right to just go anywhere she wants she's just trying to like skip ahead in the line any way she can with I don't know. I don't even know if there's like any pride in her work, which mm, puts me in a weird position. She does
2: a good job, that, like that, like the way that she manages Don and the expectations she being Jane about the Bobby's call or Bobby Barrett's call too so many times, or when Duck and and Don are celebrating, you know, their their teamwork for once and their their new peace treaty about how they landed Martinson's coffee and. When Jane's like, oh, Cooper wants to see you in his office. So, like, oh, great. We know the account. We're going to go. And she, like, looks seductive. She goes, oh, no, just him. Right? It's like, Jane is good at her job. It's this
0: like, youthful arrogance that I probably appreciated more in 2008. But now it's 2020. And right. I am an older person with bad knees where I'm like, listen, young person. Because I've definitely worked with people like that who you know come in and do the work that i do and i can tell that they are smart and clever and they learn really fast and work hard but they get very anxious and very kind of petulant when the situation or the circumstances aren't what they want them to be so they try to go around it as opposed to like no this is how it is just do the job so it's kind of a weird thing of like, now I just feel like an old person.
2: <laughs> no, the uh, the realization that like, I don't, I never wanted to be one of quote unquote, like those like older people and always like listen and learn. And then it's like, it's what I said 10 years ago and I'm still working at it, but it is a lot harder than it used to be. So I feel, I feel that. So
0: it's like kind of almost the lack of deference that she shows to Joan because- yeah I mean oh for sure definitely up until this point we have seen a lot of things from Joan where we're like we kind of don't like you and don't like what you do even though we respect what you do she had to crawl and climb often in really uncomfortable underwear (laughs) so Jane could just like swoop on in and be like yeah why don't we just walk into the office like look you get to do what you do because Jane Joan did what she did and you didn't get to see Mm
2: -hmm. any of
0: it and I think that's a real point of contention because like we've said so many times before joan is very proud of the per of where she is and she worked really fucking hard and dealt with a lot of things that she shouldn't have had to to come up against to get to that point and then on top of it on top of it on top of it uh, <laughs> <laughs> jo uh, jane turns around uses her little baby puppy dog um you know i'm wearing a tight bra eyes at Roger knowing he's weak for that kind of thing and when she shows up on Think Monday it was yes probably she shows up on Monday she has the audacity to look so terrified and brush Cosgrove off because she knows people are watching and just be so nervous and like there's she knows that there's something to what she did that doesn't have the right amount of that isn't like well grounded she didn't necessarily earn that spot back that's kind of annoying.
2: And I want to ask you both about something that you have in the notes, right? So, Annie, in, in your notes, you have having tried to play Roger. And then, Melissa, you also you have the, like, did she not successfully play Roger? I want to, like, talk about that a bit if we can, right? Mm-hmm. Because, can I catch everyone up? She goes to, to Roger and he's like, oh, I'll have it fixed. You know, Joan just needs to blow off steam sometimes. Come back Monday and it's not a problem. Roger hasn't talked to Joan. Mm-hmm. Joan knew nothing about this. But Joan knows that if Jane has talked to Roger and he said that not to bring it up and Joan just accepts it. So was Roger played? Who was played? Well, I,
1: I kind of took it as like at this stage in the game, the beef is no longer with Jane. The beef is now with Roger. Who has taken one of Joan's decisions and reversed it?
2: And didn't even tell her that he was reversing it.
1: Mm-hmm. And didn't even tell her because he's mad at her for getting engaged, and he's acting like she's had a hard time when really is the one that he really he's the one who's having a hard time. Because in this scenario, he is the golden boy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> See, to me, I kind of read as Roger not living up to a promise. Like it really wasn't that important to him oh, that that's he's true, just then. that empty and shallow and living in each moment of like, yeah, of course I'm gonna fix it. I'm totally gonna fix it. I- I'll talk to Jane. I'll just dismiss her and blah blah blah. I'll make it all right. But then not actually do anything. It's just him in that moment being like, there's a pretty girl who's talking to me, and I'm gonna try to impress her. So, like, it wasn't necessarily like I don't think Jean, Jane, Joan, God damn it. Joan to me wasn't like, I'm going to defer to Roger. I can't go over him on this. Like, I don't think she can. But at the same time, with what Roger said about her being impetuous and it not really meaning anything, it's just her recognizing Jane's game and the person that she is against now and making a calculated choice not to fight back this time because her time will come Mm,
1: mm -hmm. yeah
0: because she's just like no i know what's going on it's perfectly clear there's no problem because like i got your number now bitch roger's just a tool to me in this roger i mean literally he's a he's like a metaphorical tool but also just like he's a tool
1: he just is (laughs) a tool
0: I mean, I think Jane's trying to achieve that, but she hasn't quite gotten there yet because she's definitely still afraid of Joan, even though she tries to sass her back.
2: It's kind of a human moment, wasn't it, where she's bold enough to step out and use Roger and comes back. But she's also nervous about what's going to happen.
0: She didn't even want to flirt with Cosgrove. Like, that's how scared she was.
1: (laughs) Who doesn't want to flirt with Cosgrove? (laughs)
0: Is he your new favorite now, Melissa?
1: Oh, He's been my favorite. I just normally say that shit off pod because he hasn't been doing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have put his face into bits and bobs a couple times, so like, okay. <laughs>
2: yeah, no, there you go.
1: I feel like it's been foreshadowed.
2: <laughs> so speaking of flirting with Ken. Speaking of crushes um,
0: on Ken. <laughs>
2: How did we feel about the uh, Sal, Ken, Kitty...
1: (sighs) (laughs) Thruple? LT3?
0: I love them. Oh, Sal.
1: Quick note before we really get into it. Um, Kitty is played by Sarah Drew, who I know from Grey's Anatomy, and I was super, super thrilled to see her. I really like that actress, even though I haven't seen her in I just realized
0: that I do remember her in Grey's Anatomy because I still sort of watch it then, but at the same time, my main point of reference for her was that time she played a high schooler who was possessed by a demon in Supernatural. Oh! <laughs> Probably around the same time she's on Grey's Anatomy, too.
2: And what have this been around like 2008-ish when this, ep- when this episode aired? Or?
0: Yes, because Supernatural yeah. has
2: been around forever.
1: Sarah Drew was in a TV Christmas movie in 2019 called Twinkle All the Way. So I have failed
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh that sounds up Mm, up your alley
1: Yeah,
0: (laughs) um she is a delight though and she
2: is significantly younger than sal
1: she is well she's always had a crush on an older man
2: and i did like that the episode kind of like spoke to that a bit too right and it like it at the start there we kind of got caught up to what happened with Sal and Kitty in in nineteen sixty one when they got married? Right, because season one ends. It's still nineteen sixty. We come back this year. It's nineteen sixty two, and Sal has a wife. So I did appreciate the the backstory of of how that kind of manifested and came to be. Um, yeah, I just kind of felt bad for both Sal and Kitty mm-hmm. in this this yeah, whole sure. episode, Definitely. right? And like the like. Pain that like sell being a closeted gay man in 1962, how it both harms him and then those around him, right? Because I mean, he's married to Kitty, and she loves him, and is assumingly always had a had a crush on him from back in the neighborhood in Baltimore, and mm-hmm. he can't, he doesn't feel like he's able to share who he is with her, and won't let her in, whether it's in with himself or with you know office talk and. This this crush she has now on Canon, it just it just hurts my heart for all of them. It
0: does. It did because like why I mean, okay, sure. No. definitely been that person who just couldn't help the crush on the incredibly wrong for me kind of guy. But He had this opportunity to actually be with someone who he had a connection with and who wanted him back, even if they were going to have to hide everything. And he turned that down just for the sake of safety. But now it's almost like he's making himself vulnerable all over again for something that's definitely not going to happen. And Sal, oh, my God, what are you doing? Buddy.
1: And on top of
0: that, he's hurting Sarah Drew in the process.
1: I know and she's such a nice wife and she's just doing her best and like when she just said after that dinner like do you not see me here I was like oh I hate this as much as I love love watching Sal and Ken in their blossoming romance like I hate this
0: (sighs) just watching her in the background when he dismissed what um what she was saying about her what was it her cousin or something who has a who works for an ad agency in Montreal and no 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 Ken doesn't want to hear about this and you're like he she's trying to be a part of your world in some way yeah. and this is so s-
1: we're like just trying to be a part of this dinner <laughs> conversation God for fuck's sake
0: I mean for as much as like Betty doesn't get to be of in Don's whole life. Don does bring her along and lets her be a part of the conversation and woo the guests, and occasionally lets her be her be the partner in trying to win over people.
1: Yeah. So on that note, like comparing them, um, obviously, like we can tell that Kitty isn't Sal's like main priority because she like we see the way that he treats her at the dinner, and because she has to ask like, "Do you not see me here?" But, like, on another hand, he is, like, a pretty attentive husband. Um, Like, they have this cute banter about, like, uh, how they decorated their apartment. And when he says, like, she's, she's like, snarky kind of. She says, like, "Do, do you even care if, like, I want dessert? He's like, oh, of course I care. Like, I'll get it for you. I'll take care of the kitchen. And, like, on paper, those are all really great things. And we would love for the husbands in the show to be doing those things and like it's bittersweet because we know he's doing them to like overcompensate for the fact that he wants to date men um but it's like nice to see him I don't know it's like hard it's complicated it's nice to see him be that way but it's like still sad but also like if every if all the husbands could just do Fifty percent of like the right <laughs> thing for the right reasons, we would all be in great shape here on Mad Men. Yeah. Like fifty percent. That's not a big percentage. <laughs> it's five out of ten yeah. times.
0: But and but I mean Sal does do the right things and a little bit for the right reason, but there's still the big important thing missing. So it's still incredibly unfulfilling for her. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: well and like and he he misses the mark because he's not doing them. You know, he's like, I need to be a super attentive husband, one, because I'm a nice person. And also because I married this girl and I don't love her. And so I need to, like, give her something back because she's giving me, like, Mm -hmm. uh, cover. Yeah, Yeah. like she's
0: not he's not paying attention to her emotional needs, even like even if they were going to be in a completely platonic loving marriage, they could at least have a certain kind of friendship where he paid attention to her needs because she tries to be seems
2: like she's trying to be attentive to his
0: a little reciprocation yeah, would be nice
2: a well-groomed and moisturized and soft beard is still a beard mm-hmm. so you're not like connecting mm-hmm. with some right <laughs> whether it's mm-hmm. the beard on your face or it's the still beard gonna that burn you're <laughs> because you're in the closet
0: but Sal was doing pulling some good flirting and even though it was slightly wasted on cosgrove
2: yeah, and I and I do like these little like pink these peaks and like callbacks to like Ken as like the writer, and it's like, is there actually like a sensitive soul under all of that kind of like bravado and like performative masculinity that like Ken has at the office a lot? I mean, Sal seems to think so. I'm starting to think so. Um,
1: I hope
0: not. I'll be in danger. We can't see him as a complex human being, although he's slowly trying to reveal himself to, like, both be trash, but also sensitive, thoughtful guy.
1: Especially watching this episode for the second time, like, knowing everywhere it's going, like... Uh, you start getting the, the Sal and Ken stuff like really early in the episode. Like, uh, Ken makes this comment in the first meeting of the episode where he's like, isn't that West Side Story? And Sal just like looks directly at him and is like, you oh, what is, story? what is this? What is this? And then, yeah, they connect over the painting. But it's like, I love... This between them, this is a problem <laughs> for me personally. Um, but they like connect over this painting because, like, Sal is so impressed with Ken, like, being like, Oh, it's like looking into something deep, and Sal's like, Oh, same, me looking at you. But then at the same note, like, uh, Ken is like surprised by Sal, so they have this like thing together and like if they could be in love. Oh, it's almost like let toxic- me have this
0: madman. <laughs> it's almost like the toxic masculinity hasn't allowed them to be the full complex human beings that they are.
1: They make these jokes about how they're fragile to each
2: other. <laughs> Stop. So remember a couple episodes back when right before this was actually was before New Girl it was when right before Don and Bobby Barrett had their, their car accident, they were out for dinner and we have an appearance of my fave, Rachel Macon. And then, then she leaves. Um, and then Don lights Bobby's cigarette and just we talked about how like mm. intuitively and like mm. the power of that moment. And that's all I could think about when Ken lit Sal's cigarette at the dinner table. Um, mm. Anyone else think about that, too?
0: <laughs> I mean, Melissa's definitely thinking about I? it now.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think about people lighting other people's cigarettes. So often, all the time. Almost. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But like, it is definitely a thing. And like, it's already an established thing in the show. And like, I love that it was Ken lighting Sal's cigarette. But Sal also fed Ken off of a fucking spoon. So just... Wow. Put me in my grave. It is kind of amazing how for all the
0: male bra- bravado and everything that goes on in that office, when they're allowed... To safely be away from all that, it's just so comfortable. Just you know, lighting each other's cigarettes and talking about their feelings and sharing their their. I'm art.
1: kind of fragile. I,
0: I was I was almost like staggering to hear, even jokingly, can say that.
1: I know. Oh, sorry. oh no. <laughs>
0: in danger girl
1: i've been in quarantine for too long let me out
2: (laughs) 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 no and the only other thing i kind of wanted before like the to talk about the divert from the lighter for for a second because we definitely should talk about the lighter um the only other thing i kind of wanted to hit with sal and ken was sal not sharing ken's story with kitty it's, it's, it's a bit of, like, an onion for me. It has layers. Um, so, like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's totally about wanting to pr- protect Ken's privacy, but also it's about this, like, secret trust that Sal now likes with Ken, and it's just another thing that he's then excluding he being Sal, Kitty from, and not letting him see, you know, just kind of exclusion whether it's work and, you know, like he does a dinner with the work conversation or ultimately his own... His own sexuality and stuff too right and it was just so cute right when when ken's leaving he's like yeah this was good thanks for everything yeah you, you can let kitty read the story i wouldn't mind it's just like oh
1: but now all three of them have a thing
2: <laughs> you gonna be okay
1: yes i'm just trying to determine like how much more needs to be said Probably, probably not. not much more. Probably said too much.
0: <laughs> Do you think we're going to see more of their friendship slash flirtation developing or
1: well, I lost my entire shit over it, so probably not. <laughs> I mean, I hope so. Like we saw Sal sitting in his like darkened living room lighting cigarettes with Ken's lighter. So I feel like at least for him, this is going to linger. I don't think, like, as much as I've talked about how much I love him, I don't think that, like, we know. Like, probably only four episodes ago, I was still on pod talking about how trash Ken is. So, like, you know, he'll probably move on from this, like, dream of Sal loving his writing pretty quickly and be off. Like, he was still creeping on Jane at the end of this episode. Yeah, that's true. Like, I'm not harboring any real ideas that this is going to be real, even though that's what I want.
2: So there will be no Sufjan Stevens in Mad Men this season, is Melissa's prediction. Listen,
1: these words might come back to bite me, but (laughs) if there was boys kissing in Mad Men, someone would have had me watching it way before this. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) I'm genuinely trying to remember.
2: (laughs) And I guess the only other thing I wanted to then just kind of to tie together is in the callback is, again, that idea of we talked about the Drapers as a family, being a bit of, like, that gold violin. And I, and I think, too, um, Sal and Kitty's marriage is a bit of that for us because we have that insight into, you know, who Sal is and that he's closeted because Ken says to him later in the episode that that's what you guys have is what I want. I want that someday. I, I want to, you know, have that rapport with my wife and, you know, so on and so forth. So, But we know it's not working for Kitty, and I don't really think it's working for Sal for reasons we've talked about. So... Bits and bobs.
0: Bits and bobs. Bits and bobs. Uh, so, what do you guys think of the Rothko painting?
2: What did you think of the Rothko painting?
0: I thought it would just look pretty good. <laughs> it was something to be experienced and not necessarily mean
2: anything. Oh well, we it hired you. Like we hired looking you for numbers. Into something so really stick deep. stick to the numbers. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Melissa. Uh, so they said it was about
0: ten thousand dollars when he paid for it, and it just kind of served the purpose of being almost like a test. But uh, later on we find out that uh, Cooper basically kind of bought it as an investment more than anything, and he figures...
1: He don't give a shit about art. Yeah,
0: he just wants to make that money and look kind of cool while he does it. Um, But at the same time, he's not going to, like, pretend that he's not doing it for the money. He just lets everyone else think that what they want to think. But I looked it up and according to Business Insider, uh, the painting in today's
2: time would
0: now be worth about up to $86.8 million. So well done, Cooper, on your investment.
2: Well, that totally speaks to his advice to Don, though, too, about like... What you're supposed to do to keep up in appearance is the idea of like conspicuous consumption, which we we've referenced a couple times in this episode. But basically, it's the idea that you need to have the Cadillac as a as a status symbol, right? Bert needs to have the buy art for the investment of it, and that's how we justify it. But it's like what's expected of of the elite, right? So.
0: Yeah, I like that when uh, Cooper is telling him about his, like, not promotion, but like, hey, this is going to be a good thing for you and also help us out. He's like, this means you're going to be wearing a tuxedo more often. You're like, that's not, how is that important?
1: Right. Um, I'm sorry, you said philanthropy. Uh, Who are we (laughs) helping?
0: Themselves. The tuxedo salesman mainly themselves. they he's Don was invited to be one of the people who like decide how things are run. Basically,
2: he is such a randy and that Bert Cooper. Mm-hmm.
0: I also wanted to ask you what you guys thought about the coffee jingle. Not jingle, but it's kind of a jingle.
1: Um, I thought it was
0: obnoxious <laughs> <laughs> I mean it did kind of get stuck in my head for a while but it wasn't really saying anything which I guess is the point other than using counterculture to sell things
2: yeah yeah. I, it's it's really interesting for me on this kind of like re-watching and like going through Mad Men again kind of all the generational stuff, and we've touched on it a bit earlier, especially with, like, the the Joan and, like, Jane conversation and, you know, watching this, you know, 10 years ago and, like, watching it now and, and all that generational stuff. But, like, Smitty has that whole speech about what he, as a baby boomer, Right, which is funny to think of now because that's what he's playing, um, or even during the nineteen sixty election talk in in the first season. But like, what what Smitty is the youngest, him and Kurt, you know, as as boomers, how they want they don't want to be told what to do. They want that that mood, that feeling, like the Martinsons Coffee jingle, and like to be able to like discover things on their own and have this you know deliberate and authentic life. And I'm like sitting there and going like, okay, you're saying that now, but when you talk to me now, it's like you've totally forgotten that those are the things you wanted and those are the things that, like, most young generations want and think that they invented Mm. but, like, didn't. So it's just really interesting to see how that's kind of portrayed and then how, like, people, we, at generations and groups of people, we don't, like, carry that through with us to when we're in our 60s or our 70s. It's we're looking then down again and not understanding those that came after because those that came after aren't understanding what came before even though we've had similar experiences and have wanted similar things just I don't know it's just interesting to me that doesn't really answer your question yeah. <laughs> it's in there somewhere and I guess the only other thing I had in, in Bits and Bobs myself was during the picnic Sally Draper does ask are we rich to which her parents tell her again it's something that polite company doesn't talk about so you don't talk about it you just buy the cadillac and as sally grows up as people grow up they know that those are symbols whether it's you know the Rothko or the cadillac or the tuxedo those are the symbols of wealth that you then exert mm-hmm. and show that you've arrived as opposed to talking about it because talking about it isn't polite it isn't very polite
1: yeah and this is something that i just thought about but it's like um like, Don tells Sally that story about, like, oh, when we lived on the farm, we had an outhouse far, far away, and it's like, yeah, we, uh, you're not supposed to talk about money in, like, quote, unquote, polite society, but I think that, especially during these times, we're all realizing how, like, comforting it can be to, like, talk to your friends about money and, like, Maybe they have, like, better budgeting strategies than I do or, like, you can share, like, the small victories with people. That's been something that's, like, been comforting to me um, during a time of uh, quarantine and financial unrest. That's all to say that, like, maybe you should talk to your little daughter about money so that she understands that, like, she's living a privileged life and that, like, not everyone is going to have Cadillacs. And this isn't something we just uh, don't talk about. It's something that we should think about and make sure that we are using our powers for good okay not on Mad
2: Men. fine mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you're allowed to talk about being poor and humble but you can't really talk about the other thing
2: i mean some would say that that's a way that the ruling class then further entrenches themselves and by not educating and <laughs> not discussing this with their, their children and, and and approaching and confronting their own you know privilege whichever flavor of privilege it is whether it's economic or or, or racial or, or whatever that also then leaves them in the gilded cage and you know is what keeps the oppressed classes down mm-hmm. and by some people would say i might say that but this is a political podcast <laughs> so... <laughs> so we'll stop matt will stop there short of calling for revolution
1: um with that i think we did it if you want to find um more of matt's work on the internet tell us where we can do that
2: Ah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Mattyhugh, M A T T Y H U G H. We're recording this now just after Easter. So if you go back and look at my search history, there have been a lot of Jesus Christ Superstar tweets lately. But, you know, I got to stay on brand. Um, what about you, Melissa?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which is o yellow um, Wild Pretty Things is doing something interesting in these current times, which is um, shorter episodes about one topic. So, if you don't want to listen to Jared and I ramble for two and a half hours, that's fine, I guess. Uh, <laughs> We're doing something for you. So we have an episode on the first four episodes of Westworld that's already out. And then we just recorded um, like a lead up episode, um, you know, talking about devs right before the season finale. And then I also guested on a podcast recently um, called Movies from the Heart. And my friend Paul and I talked all about our love for parks and recreation and that episode should be out as soon as um, our episode here is out as well. So if you really want to listen to me talk those are places you can do it. Awesome. You can find me on Instagram and
0: Twitter, both of which I don't really update very much uh, at Pop Artery, P-O-P-A-R-T-E-R-Y. Or you can also listen to me talk a little too much about Johnny Flynn on uh, my Jane Austen <laughs> podcast, The Daily Nightly. We're currently reading through Pride and Prejudice. Uh, it's
1: turns out it's a good
0: book. Would recommend.
2: Melissa, if we wanted to email the show, where could we do that at?
1: Yes. Yeah, so if you want to uh, get a hold of us here at Still Great Bob, you can do that at stillgreatbob at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at stillgreatpod. And if you really love the show and you'd like to help us out, you can rate and review us on the podcatching system of your choice. All right. Well, bye.
2: Bye. We're going to end today's episode by me, Matt, playing the gold violin.